0: the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that opinions all are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law since are 1995 georgia investigators Discretion received a advised. missing persons report for ruby Joyner and her friend halima jones just a few days later their bodies were found in a minivan beaten strangled and shot the prime suspect ruby's husband was nowhere to be found But what would compel him to commit such a heinous act? I'm Vinnie Politan and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have an audio edition of our original series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, which examines crimes committed by those closest to the victim. This week's episode is titled Murder and Missing. This is the Court TV Podcast.
1: Ruby and Lewis had moved to Peachtree City. Their lives
2: were the kind of life that I wanted to have. The women were missing.
3: And nobody could understand why Ruby and Holima were missing. Some sort of
4: confrontation occurred between Lewis and Ruby. Next thing I knew, Ruby shouted and fired the gun. I said to myself, this is how I'm going to die.
5: In 1976, Ruby Livingston, a small-town girl from rural South Carolina, met Lewis Joyner, an accomplished computer programmer from Harlem. Long before the digital revolution, they were two tech-savvy professionals who would go on to marry and enjoy their life together in New York City. But in 1990, Lewis and Ruby joined a growing number of African Americans migrating to Atlanta, in hopes of finding a better life filled with opportunities in what many were calling the New South. While the Jorners found great success in Georgia, that success came with a price tag that would cost them everything.
2: My grandmother and grandfather, they were farmers, owned their own property, had their own farm. My Aunt Ruby, like my mom and some of her other sisters, they left the South to go North for better opportunities. She actually went to New York City. That's where she met my Uncle Lewis.
3: Ruby was from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and she was kind of a country girl compared to Lewis.
2: My Uncle Lewis was always a very smart, very sharp man that I always admired. He worked at IBM at the time. Aunt Ruby was going to school at IBM, and he was actually a professor there, and that's how they met.
3: In the 1990s, Atlanta was trying to invent itself as an international city. That was a phrase you heard a lot. And it attracted people from all over the world, including a lot of African Americans from the Northeast who saw it as a fresh place to start or restart a life and a business and it had a huge influx of people and huge population growth during the 1990s.
1: Ruby and Lewis had moved to Peachtree City, which is south of Atlanta. They had relocated from New York.
2: The houses were really, really nice, very, very big. The neighborhood was filled with black doctors, black lawyers, people that I had never seen that looked like me. To see them being able to live in a neighborhood like that was really nice. Their lives were the kind of life that I wanted and aspired to be and have as an adult. They bought a moving and storage company, which crew. My uncle Lewis was on the cover of a black enterprise magazine, 1993, as being one of the fastest growing Afro-American businesses in the United States. That was something big.
3: Ruby worked at the moving company that Lewis started. They worked in the same office. And it seemed as though things were looking pretty good for them, and they owned a very nice house.
1: Halima Jones was a schoolteacher. She was divorced, had a couple of kids. And she and a man she was involved with at the time John Dunbar belonged to a social club that the Joiners belonged to. And the two couples met there, and then they became
2: friends. Halima dated someone that was inside of that circle, and I kind of think that's, that's how they all met, because that gentleman lived in the same neighborhood that my Aunt Ruby and Uncle Louis lived in.
3: Halima and Ruby liked to go shopping together and hang out together with, evidently, a bunch of other African-Americans in Petrie City.
1: Initially, the day after Halima and Ruby were known to have gotten together, they were going shopping. There were people who were concerned because the women were missing.
3: The police became involved when uh, Halima's boyfriend contacted the police to say he could not find Halima. I think it became quickly apparent that Ruby could also not be found, and nobody could understand why Ruby and Holima were missing.
6: In mid-November 1995, I received a call from a GBI agent who was responsible for Fayette County, Georgia. He had received a request for assistance from the Peachtree City Police Department and notified me that two African-American women, accomplished women, had disappeared from the Peachtree City area, and Peachtree City was a, an affluent community. I knew this was probably going to be a significant case.
2: That was a night that I, I don't think I'll ever forget in life. We called the Peachtree City Police, and as soon as I called, the police told me they were trying to find a way to get in contact with me. We found out that she was missing.
6: The disappearance of Halima Jones and Ruby Joyner became significant news in the Atlanta media market. Atlanta television stations were covering it extensively.
7: I remember going to work, and there was a report on the news of two missing women out of Peachtree City. And we're in the office, and I hope these missing women don't show up in Atlanta.
1: Over a period of several days, the case was investigated as a, a missing persons report. No one had seen these women. No one had heard from them.
2: We were trying to find my Aunt Ruby. In our minds, we thought she was somewhere, and we just had to find her. We came to Atlanta to look for my Aunt Ruby.
3: Petrie City had a reputation as a low-crime area. That was its big draw. For a period of time after the women disappeared, there was a thought that, This very safe area might not be so safe.
7: Police are called. Police show up. They look inside and sure enough.
5: Peachtree City is one of the most affluent towns in the Atlanta area. So it was highly unusual when two successful women went missing on the night of November 15th, 1995. Local media covered their disappearance extensively. As law enforcement searched for Ruby Joyner and Halima Jones, their community waited anxiously for some news about what had happened.
3: I wrote a story about the two missing women, and everyone said this is very unlike them to just go missing because they stayed close to their families, they communicated with their families, and they were very involved with their friends.
1: When I heard about these women going missing, immediately thought that some harm had befallen them.
3: It was
6: known that Lewis Joyner had left Atlanta for New York and had flown from Hartsfield International Airport.
7: Sometime tonight we get a call that there was a van had associated with the two missing women, and the van had been found at the Atlanta airport by one of the parking attendants. Police are called, please show up, they look inside and sure enough in it were the deceased bodies of Halima and Ruby.
6: Halima died of gunshot wounds from an intermediate distance. And Ruby had been beaten significantly.
1: Halima had been shot in the head. It was a through and through wound. The round had gone in. The front of her head exited out the back. Ruby had sustained massive injuries to her face. It included skull fractures. She also had been strangled. Both of these bodies, too, were in the beginning stages of decomposition because they'd been there for a few days.
7: We get in touch with Peachtree City and advise me we found your missing women.
2: We got a phone call, and I knew it was something. The police officer let us know that we needed to come. When we got to the police station, they let us know that they had found her body. And it's like whenever they said that, It was over for me. I I just blanked out. I just, it took me a minute.
1: Ruby Joyner was beaten and strangled. Halima Jones was shot in the head. The van belonged to Halima. And previously, Seat had been taken out of the van. And both of the women
2: were found in the back of it. It's like everything went blurry. We got back in the car and we got a little bit down the road, and I can remember just losing it. So much so, we had to stop the car.
6: There were several jurisdictions involved in this case. Halima Jones and Ruby Joyner disappeared from Peachtree City, which is in Fayette County, Georgia, which also has a a sheriff's department. Their bodies were found in, in Hartsfield International Airport, which is in Clayton County, but is also considered the city of Atlanta.
3: So those two jurisdictions were involved. Lewis had gone to New York City, yet while he was in New York, he was communicating with the police.
7: We got him on the phone, talked to him. Your wife's missing, why'd you fly down to New York? And, oh, I needed to be with my family. and it Didn't make a whole lot of sense. And then he just quit answering, and not he quit taking our calls.
1: After the killings, no one knew where he was initially except for Jeff Lester. He called him and had
2: Mr. Lester come to New York. I never knew anything about Jeffrey Lester. I realized he was a friend of Lewis's, and not sure what their relationship was. I know they'd been friends for a very long time.
6: Jeff Lester flew back from New York and we intercepted him off his flight as it arrived in Atlanta. And he was questioned immediately, but he denied any knowledge of Lewis Joyner insofar as the murders and kind of gave us a story that we knew wasn't plausible. But we had nothing with which to charge Mr. Lester or otherwise attempt to compel him to cooperate. What we did do was continue the investigation.
3: When the police started looking for him and they searched his property, they found drugs. And he had actually been arrested the year before. And he had some cocaine with him at the time. And he was charged with possession of cocaine.
1: Halima and Lewis were living a double life. Both used cocaine. I think that both Halima and Lewis were more sociable, more outgoing people than Ruby
2: and John Dunbar. My uncle was more like a mentor and more like even a father to me. I can't ever say ever in life that I ever saw my Uncle Lewis do any type of drugs. I I don't think that he would have done that in front of me.
3: Eventually, Halima and Lewis started having an affair. They got together and were having sex behind Ruby's back.
2: Never in a million years would I have thought, and still my Uncle Lewis had anything to do with this situation. In my mind, I'm just still trying to think, maybe something happened, you know, somebody, else. it couldn't have been my Uncle Lewis.
6: A police officer wound up in a struggle with him where they both, I believe, almost fell off the building.
5: Six days after their disappearance, the bodies of Ruby Joyner and Halima Jones were found discarded in an abandoned van left in the long term parking lot of the Atlanta airport. After unsuccessfully attempting to get answers from Ruby's husband, Lewis, authorities focused on his friend, Jeff Lester. Lester had apparently met with Lewis in Newark shortly before the women's bodies were discovered.
2: I can remember when they found the bodies. She was bludgeoned to death. I didn't know what bludgeon meant. I didn't realize how bad it was until we went to the funeral home. We were able to go and take a look. But who I saw was not the person that I know. I'm looking. This is not my aunt. It was a difficult time at the funeral. Even that day, the police was there thinking that there was a possibility he would show up at the services.
6: Jeff Lester had been contacted by Lewis Joyner after Joyner went to New York. And at Joyner's request, Jeff flew to the Newark airport and met with Lewis Joyner.
1: Jeffrey Lester returned to the area and shared that with his ex-wife, who was the one who reported the contact to law enforcement. And then they contacted Mr. Lester.
6: We put a little pressure, subtle pressure, on him and approximately four days later, Jeff Lester realized we were not interested in charging him with anything, and he provided us information that he could.
1: On the night of November 15th, 1995, the two women, Ruby and Halima, were with Lewis, and they were in an area that was south of the Atlanta airport that was very secluded. In terms of what actually happened, of those three people still to talk about it, the only one left afterwards was Lewis.
3: Lewis says that Ruby shot and killed Halima because she was jealous. And then Lewis ran, and Ruby chased him. And then they fought in this abandoned subdivision, and that's how he killed her.
7: You know, you have your crimes of passion whereas in heat-of-the-moment, rage. And you have your premeditated murders, like this Lewis Joyner. Though it didn't go as his planned. The evidence
6: in the case indicated that, that Halima had probably had been hit by a stray bullet as Lewis tried to shoot Ruby. That, that's what we believed happened. I
7: don't think he meant to kill Halima. I think his eyes were just so bad. And he just shot and missed and hit Halima. He's done at that point. He meant to kill Ruby and killed Halima. She
6: was killed as a consequence and Lewis caught Ruby, chased her into the woods and beat her significantly. It was an interpersonal crime. There was a lot of a lot of violence that was evident in the, both the scene and the condition of Ruby's body. Jeff Lester told us that he had met Lewis Joyner in Newark for the purpose of Lewis Joyner telling him where the crime scene was. Lewis reportedly asked Jeff to look for some objects that Lewis left there. We learned that Lewis Joyner said that he had returned to the crime scene himself to try to recover those items. While he was there and it was in a wooded area, he saw a police officer come up to his vehicle and inspect it for a couple of minutes. We had the Georgia Crime Information Center run an offline query to see if Lewis Joyner's vehicle had ever been run through the computer network by any police agency. We found that police officer, and she showed us exactly where she ran the vehicle's tag. So we started
7: looking, started walking the area, and sure enough, walking down the hill, and there's shell casings and Ruby Joyner's sweater. And it kind of led off the road, kind of led back into the woods, just following the breadcrumbs, where we found spring from the magazine. We found Louis Joyner's glasses, earrings belonging to Ruby. So we knew, nah, this is our crime scene right here. The crime actually happened in Fulton County, and then they found the
3: bodies at the airport, most of which is in Clayton County. So what's kind of a jurisdictional mishmash?
6: Once we found the crime scene, he was charged and warrants were entered into the system so we could actually look for him with a means to detain
2: him. New York City is where he's from. I think that's where he felt more comfortable, more safe. He might've thought he could've disappeared in a big city like that. The GBI was looking for him. It was a worldwide manhunt. Me
7: and a GBI agent flew to New York to try to find him. We get a call one night. We got out of the morning that, uh, that Lewis Joyner's in the uh, Harlem Precinct jail. A New York Housing Authority police officer
6: encountered Mr. Joyner by happenstance on, on a rooftop.
2: I was doing a routine building check of uh, 7th Avenue when I counted uh, Mr. Joyner on the roof landing of that building. I approached him. I said, uh, put your hands up, put your hands on the wall. I frisked him, make sure he had no weapons on him. I went to his pocket. He had a bottle of cocaine on him. He he just went, he just flipped out, went nuts, started waving his arms, kicking his legs. He refused to put the cuffs on him. I was attempting to put the cuffs on him. He was swinging his hands, kicking me, swinging, trying to swing, trying to get loose, just trying to get out of the cuffs.
6: And wound up in a struggle with him where they both, I believe, almost, Fell off the building. And Mr. Joyner was arrested as a consequence of that and then tied back to the, the Georgia warrants that were
2: outstanding. I can remember seeing all the news and seeing him actually locked up. When I looked at him that day, that wasn't the person that I knew. That was somebody else. I wanted to give the benefit of the doubt, but I, I really couldn't because I'm like, you ran. If, if, if it was nothing, you wouldn't have ran. You would have, you would have stayed and faced the music.
6: I've never forgotten this case. You know, the brutality of the murder, the way that the case developed from a, from a missing person's case to a double murder, to having a, an offender captured in a, a rooftop struggle on a skyscraper in New York. Uh, those types of things are, are not Typical of murder cases that
7: we encounter most of the time. I think it was the coke and just the, the rage in, in, inside of it, what had just happened. And I think he was off the deep end at that point.
5: After an exhaustive investigation requiring the efforts of multiple law enforcement agencies across two states, Lewis Joyner was finally brought into custody for the murder of his wife, Ruby Joyner, and his mistress, Halima Jones. While the prosecution will try to convince the jury that Lewis committed the murders in cold blood, his attorney will argue that he acted in self-defense. Ladies and gentlemen of the
1: jury, good morning. On November 15th of last year, in the late afternoon, early evening hours, Ruby Joyner left her job at an ophthalmologist office located in Riverdale. And she was on her way to her home in Peachtree City. And from there, she planned to go out shopping for the evening with a friend of hers, Holima Jones.
6: There was malice aforethought in these murders. There was a motivation dealing with the, the lover's triangle that was involved.
1: There are only three people who know what actually happened that night, and two of them cannot tell us. But I submit to you that the evidence will speak for them. And at the close of this case, at the close of the evidence, I will come back before you, and I will ask you to issue verdicts that are true and just in this case. And I submit to you that they will be verdicts of guilty against this defendant for the murders of Halima Jones and Ruby Joyner. Thank you.
6: How it went down. Precisely, we we may never know, but this was not just an immediate reaction. There was there was thought that went into this. Hence, he was charged with murder.
8: May it please the court. closing counsel, let me start my opening statement by doing a couple of things that I have not done
1: yet. Mr. Sadal told the jury in opening that it was Ruby who killed Halima, and that. Joyner had killed Ruby in self-defense.
8: He was responsible morally for the death of two people. If he had not had the affair with Halima, his wife would not have reacted as she did. If he had not been using cocaine with Halima, maybe the affair wouldn't have started. If his wife hadn't shot Halima, he wouldn't have had to defend
7: himself. My theory on what happened, I think he went to kill Ruby. Missed, hit Halima, killed her. Ruby says, oh sh-. takes off running. cause She knows the deal and didn't run quite fast though. I think it was the coke and just the, the rage in, in, inside of it what had just happened. And I think he was off the deep end at that point.
1: Dr. Gowett, based on the uh, autopsy of Halima Jones within the bounds of reasonable medical certainty, have you formed an expert opinion concerning the cause of death? I have. And what is that opinion?
9: Uh, Ms. Jones sustained a gunshot wound with the entrance being on the right side of her head, just below and behind her ear. The bullet passing through uh, several critical structures of her brain, including the cerebellum, and the posterior part of her brain called the occipital lobe and the bullet exiting the left side of her head just above and just behind the left ear.
1: Does the path that the bullet took tell you anything about the position of Ms. Jones' body when she was shot?
9: It it, it doesn't tell me anything. I think it's safe to say that the shooter probably stood on the right side of Mrs. Jones when, when she was shot. But that doesn't exclude that they were face to face and she turned her
1: head then ms jones could have been sitting or she could have been standing
9: yes i think all of those well those two positions are possible plus probably a multitude more immediately upon being shot there's going to be a considerable amount of spray both in the form of brain matter and blood that would come out the left side of her head as the bullet exits her head
6: the uh The absence of blood spatter on the doorpost, uh, in the front passenger compartment, and on the interior of the side cargo door and the rear cargo door uh, indicated to me, along with the debris that was entwined around the bodies and on the bodies, that the victims had been killed at some other place and placed in the van.
1: Dr. Gowitz, who performed the autopsies on both women, he was able to talk about the extensive nature of Ruby's injuries, just how severe, horrific they were.
9: And these uh, lacerations here, the one that's around her eye and the one that's just behind it, were associated with underlying skull fractures. When When I reflected this tissue away and looked at the bone underneath that tissue, the ridge of the eye, if you put your finger right on your eye and feel that ridge, the ridge was cracked. And then underlying this laceration was what we call a depressed skull fracture. That is, some object had impacted against her head with enough force not only to fracture the skull, but to take a small portion of it and push it
2: inward. Jeffrey Lester was the person that Lewis asked to go to the crime scene to kind of clean the crime scene up when kind of tampered with the evidence.
1: What else did he tell you then? about the fact that he knew where the bodies were?
10: He had said that they wouldn't find the bodies, that, that he knew where they were, for probably a short period of time. We talked for a few more minutes, and then he had told me that what had happened, that Ruby had shot a and that he had fought with Ruby in self-defense.
1: Did he mention anything about a gun? Yes, he did. What did he say about a gun?
10: That uh, Ruby had, had a gun and had shot a Lima.
1: Joyner was trying to enlist his aide in going to the scene to recover some items. I, I think that the defendant's glasses were there. Mr. Lester was reluctant to do that, did not want to do that. And what was it then, Mr. Lester, that he asked you to do in regard to this case?
10: He had asked that I might go to the crime scene and see if I could retrieve some articles that were left there.
1: Did he mention what articles?
10: Best I can remember, it was glasses and possibly a pager and I think a cap.
1: And did he tell you why it was that he wanted you to retrieve these items?
10: Just that he didn't want them found otherwise.
1: Well, did he indicate to you why he didn't want them
10: found? Well, I would assume to cover the uh, crime scene.
1: And what did you say in response to his request for you to go and do that, to, to dispose of this, these items, to get them?
10: That I wouldn't go.
1: And why weren't you willing to do it?
10: Uh, there's certain things I wouldn't do for love or money.
4: When I turned, I saw the gun pointing at me. I said to myself, this is how I'm going to die.
5: There were no eyewitnesses to what happened on the night of November 15th, 1995. No solid evidence supporting the state's theory that Lewis killed Halima Jones. So it will be up to the defendant to take the stand and convince the jury he acted in self-defense when he beat his wife to death.
7: Mr. I call you first witness, please, sir.
8: The defense calls Lewis to All
0: right. You swear or affirm the testimony to you about to give before this court will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Yes,
1: sir. The defendant really had to take the stand in order to say that it was self-defense uh, and also to describe about Ruby killing Halima.
8: Mr. Joyner, did you kill Halima Jones? No, sir. Did you kill Ruby Joyner in
4: self-defense? Yes, sir.
2: If my... Uncle Lewis and Halima was having an affair, believe me, my aunt would have dealt with it in a, in a different way. She's not going to go pick out appliances with someone she thinks is having an affair with her husband.
8: When was the first time if ever that you discussed the affair or suspected affair with Ruby, Julian?
4: That was in July. The- July of 95. We believe that there was a, a,
6: a drug aspect to this, that he may have been intoxicated with cocaine, plus the anger and the emotion and dealing with being confronted with uh, uh, having a relationship.
4: And
8: why was Halima calling you to find out if you're going to meet with her that evening?
4: Um, because I, 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 I had some cocaine for her.
7: It would appear that Lewis and Halima had been having an affair for a while. And there was some uh, drug abuse going on as well amongst them. And Ruby and Halima met Lewis.
4: I went over to their car and I greeted them. Ruby got out because she had to go to the ladies' room. So I got in the, in the passenger seat. All
8: right, so that puts you in the passenger seat. Where is Halima?
4: Still in the driver's seat, sir.
8: What goes on, if anything, between you and Halima?
4: Well, Halima and I embraced and we were kissing and...
2: My Aunt Ruby wouldn't have saw them in an embrace and not say anything. She would have made that clear right then and there.
8: What, if anything, was said when Ruby returned to the van?
4: Ruby knocked on the window. Halima rolled down the window. And Ruby said, let's go have a drink at this new place.
2: Oh my goodness! I never really saw my aunt drink, so to say I'm going to go to a bar. Why would you want to go to a bar if you, you know, seldom drink? It
4: was decided that since this was a place that Ruby was aware of, that she should drive. So with that in mind, Halima got in the back, and Ruby was now driving Halima's van.
8: Now Halima's in the back. Is she sitting on a seat in the back?
4: No. The, the no. The van had no additional seats, so she was sitting on the floor in the back of the van.
6: This was a very spooky neighborhood, and this was at night. It was essentially a subdivision that had been completely bulldozed years ago and grown over. So streets and curbs and driveways
4: were present, but they led to nowhere.
8: And when Ruby got out, what did you do?
4: Well, Halim and I was using coke, and and the next thing I knew, Ruby shouted, you cheating and fired the gun at Halim. Some sort of
6: confrontation occurred between Lewis and, and Ruby and the, the consequence was him uh, acting out in rage and inadvertently killing
4: Halima. What did you do? Then she pointed at me and I just ran. Alright, did
8: you hear the gun go off anymore?
4: Yes, sir.
1: I never once for a moment thought that Ruby Joyner had murdered Halima Jones. I, I don't believe that she had a, a gun.
8: At some point, you ran into the woods. What happened?
4: I tripped on some shrubbery, and Ruby pounced on me. She started hitting me. I was just basically defending myself, just trying to talk to her. But w- what I clearly remember is that when I turned, I saw the gun pointing at me. I said to myself, "This is how I'm going to die."
8: And what happened then?
4: And then I ensued a struggle with her to try to get the gun from her. Lewis Joyner
6: had a story that didn't make sense, and we didn't believe it. And of course, we we knew
4: otherwise. Eventually. I was on top of her. We both had hands on the gun, and I was trying to get away.
8: Were you hitting her at the time with the gun in your left hand, with her hand on the gun as well? Yes, sir. Were you hitting her as hard as you could?
4: Yes, sir. Top what defense.
8: for? Why?
4: To, to, uh, to get the gun away from her and for me to try to get away. Did you know that she was dead? No, sir. Was she moving? I don't recall, sir.
2: The story he told, he, he told it well. You know, he had a very good legal team. They all sounded like they were going to make this story stick, even though it didn't, none, none of it made any sense. So it was bad.
1: On a personal level, cross-examination is just fun. Joyner was certainly no exception here, but he had a lot to say, so there was a lot to cross on, a lot to talk about. So you have no idea where this gun came from?
4: I have no idea. No.
1: I mean, at that moment, at you that just moment, see Rudy,
4: yes, with the gun.
1: exactly right. And Ruby yells, "What is it, you cheating?" B-? Yes. You watch a lot of bad TV, don't you, Mr. Joiner? During cross examination, much of his direct examination was discounted. That his recounting of what had happened just wasn't credible. And is it at about the same time she's yelling that that she fires the gun?
4: at the same time.
6: Halima Jones was likely just an innocent party caught in what was essentially a crossfire.
1: Then as soon as you make that eye contact, you turn around and run with your back to her. Is that right? Yes. And to your knowledge, she still had that gun in her hand? Yes. The scene seemed consistent with not only that the defendant was the aggressor, that he wasn't acting in self-defense, but also that there was a certain amount of anger or rage that was involved here. OK, this is purely for uh, demonstrative purposes, Mr. Joyner, but does this appear to be the gun? that you and your wife struggled with or looked like the gun that the two of you struggled with on the night of November 15th. It looks like it. The fact that he was beating her, that suggested, too, that it was a very personal crime. Mr. Joyner, this is state's exhibit number 87. Were all of those wounds administered when the two of you were struggling over that gun? I say yes. And how long would you say that this went on, that your wife just would not not let go of those fingers? Uh,
4: Ma'am, as I said, this whole thing probably took one or two minutes. I don't know. I mean, it it, it seems to me like hours. Mm
1: -hmm. Because
4: at one point, I I, I got so fatigued.
1: Right. I mean, it it takes a lot, doesn't it, to be beating your wife's skull in, Mr. Mm -hmm. Joyner? I think the evidence was really overwhelming that um, he did not act in
4: self-defense. I I did not see these type of wounds that night, ma'am.
1: What type of wounds did
4: you see? I I don't recall. I mean, I know she was hit, but I I didn't see anything like this.
2: I wanted to stay throughout the whole trial, stayed as long as I could.
5: I ended up having to leave. I couldn't even stay for the verdict. Although there is no clear evidence connecting Lewis Joyner to the death of his mistress, Halima Jones, there is no doubt that he was responsible for the death of his wife, Ruby. After hearing graphic testimony about the extent of her injuries, the jury will have to decide whether Lewis acted in self-defense. When he took her life,
8: it is a complete defense that Lewis Joyner acted with self defense, acted in self defense.
1: The strategy was to prove that he had murdered both women, and that entailed then proving that. Ruby had not killed Halima or disproving the defendant's version of events in terms of the killing of Halima and then proving that he had not acted in self-defense when he murdered Ruby.
8: There is no aggravated assault unless it is unlawful. It is not unlawful if he acted in self-defense. And if it was in self-defense, it cannot be murder, what we call malice murder.:
1: It was a tougher road to hoe as far as Halima was concerned, because of the lack of any kind of physical evidence:
8: If Ruby Joyner shot the gun, there is no guilt for Lewis Joyner on any of the charges against Halima Jones. Period.
1: The defendant would have you blame law enforcement for the fact that he cannot take responsibility for his own actions. And when I speak of responsibility here, I too am talking about legal responsibility. I would submit I argued to the the jury that the, the lack of any physical evidence really discounted the defendant's version of events. And he was the one who had the motive to lie, of course, and could say whatever he wanted to because it was so long after the fact, as opposed to if he had just reported it to law enforcement initially. It is difficult to comprehend that a person who is justified in killing one individual and completely innocent in killing another person doesn't come forward at the time to tell anybody that especially when all of the proof as it exists at the time that this happened supports what it is that he says. I have no doubt that he was responsible for both of their murders. And that's something that happens with a lot of cases where there are occasions when we will never know. Ladies and gentlemen, only three people know what happened out there. Two of them can no longer tell us, and one of them cannot be counted on to tell us the truth. But clues have been left, the evidence that you have before you that speak to what it was that happened out there. And when you return verdicts of guilty as to the murders of Halima Jones and Ruby Joyner, they will not only be verdicts that speak the truth as to what happened here, but you won't be telling the defendant anything he doesn't know and hasn't known since November 15th. Thank you.
7: Whatever your verdict is, it must be unanimous, that is, agreed to by all. The verdict must be signed by one of your members as four person, dated, returned, and published in open court.
2: It was so bad. I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. I wanted to stay throughout the whole trial, stayed as long as I could. Because I'd heard so many things, and the things that they said, they were making them sound like they were realistic, I ended up having to leave. I couldn't even stay for the verdict.
7: All right, Miss Penn, would you publish a verdict, please?
1: Yes, sir. We, the jury, find the defendant, Lewis Albert Joyner Jr., count one, murder, guilty. Count two, felony murder, guilty. Count three, aggravated assault, guilty. Count four, murder, not guilty. Count five, felony murder, not guilty. Count six, aggravated assault, not guilty. And it's dated August 28, 1996. The jury did acquit Halima. Um, and I don't know that, that that's because they actually believed that Ruby had shot Halima, or whether it was just that the they were not comfortable finding beyond a reasonable doubt that it was the defendant who had killed her.
7: Anything mitigation?
8: I'd left to argue all day, Your Honor, but you and I, the prosecutor, know that in light of the verdict, you can only impose one sentence.
7: Must Joyner, is anything you want to say? No, sir. All right, on count one of the indictment, <clears throat> I sent you, I sent it you to life in prison.
2: It felt like justice had been served, but again then, We're talking about this person that I set on a pedestal. I don't even know if he was to call me tomorrow, if I would take the call, because I still don't feel comfortable having a conversation. It's just very difficult.
1: I've never lost a family member to a crime, but based on all of those who have that I have talked to, there isn't closure because they've sustained a loss and that person is still gone even when a jury returns a verdict of guilty. There's not some great cosmic trade-off here where you've gotten the conviction so the person comes back. So I think in, in that way, you know, it's only the, the passage of, of time
5: that helps with that. Lewis Joyner has been incarcerated in the Georgia Department of Corrections since September of 1996. He is currently serving his sentence in the Metro Reentry Facility located in Atlanta, which prepares offenders who will be released when they serve their time or if they are paroled. He will be reconsidered for parole in April of 2023. I'm Tamron Hall. Thanks for watching Someone They Knew.
0: There you have it, another audio edition of the Court TV original series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. If you want to see more episodes, they're available on our website to stream for free. Check the show notes for a link. If you want to keep up with the biggest current true crime stories, you can see me on my show, Closing Arguments, every weeknight, 8 p.m. Eastern, and on our all-new original series, Accomplice to Murder, with new episodes every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for downloading. Have a great day. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.